Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. Under New York state law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and an intent to conceal another crime. My lawyers came to me and they said, there's nothing here. They're not even saying what you did. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. He also caused others to make false statements. Trump is still lying as local prosecutors pursue criminal charges against him, doing the work that the DOJ should have been doing all along. And despite warnings to refrain from inciting violence, Trump is still attacking D.A. Bragg, the judge, Juan Marchan, and their families. Also tonight, a big victory for progressives and reproductive rights in Wisconsin. But the challenge to democracy remains very real, with Republicans pushing minority rule. And we begin with defendant Donald J. Trump back at his Mar-a-Lago home after facing his first taste of the criminal justice system as the first American president to be charged with a crime. And yet, when it came to holding Trump accountable for his crimes against the country, like using his tiny fingers to tip the scales of our federal elections, it was not the Department of Justice that brought these charges, but rather a local prosecutor in the state of New York. And Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is not alone. In Georgia, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is said to be getting closer to making her decision on whether to charge Trump for his attempts to tamper with the 2020 election. Somehow, it is falling on these two local prosecutors to redeem the soul of America as it pertains to Donald Trump and his willingness to cheat the system to try to win re-election. In doing so, they are bearing the brunt of that heavy lift, the security risk, the risk to their reputations. And they are doing this despite the fact that it is the literal job of our federal government to protect our federal elections. And yes, the DOJ, through its special counsel, is investigating Trump over his mishandling of classified documents and the events surrounding January 6th. But not this. Remember, it was the Southern District of New York that investigated and ultimately convicted Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, in part for violating campaign contribution laws pertaining to this very case at the direction of individual one, a.k.a. Donald Trump. It is not surprising that former Manhattan D.A. Cy Vance said over the weekend that it was Trump's Department of Justice under Attorney General William Barr that asked his office to stand down in its investigation of the hush money payments at that time. But why is it that when Attorney General Merrick Garland took the reins at the DOJ, that the SDNY didn't continue its investigation? It speaks to how political the DOJ has become. And when I say political, I do not mean that in a partisan sense, but rather in a sense that they do seem to be acting with the political risks in mind. Because there really was no reason for the Southern District of New York to not pursue this case. Trump was out of office. He was not a candidate, just a U.S. citizen like you or me. The only reason not to pursue it, as I can see it, was some reticence on their part to take on this particular person, to pursue Trump in particular. And it is hard to argue that that would have been the case with any other former politician. And that brings us to where we are today where it has been left to local prosecutors to pick up the pieces of the case, 
doing what the DOJ and the SDNY should have done from the start. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, MSNBC legal analyst, former FBI general counsel and former senior member member of the Mueller probe. Uh, Andrew, it is so great to see you in person. Yes. So um, last night when we were on our big set and we were all together uh, talking about this case, you know, my good friend Lawrence O'Donnell, the brilliant Lawrence O'Donnell, he brought up a possibility of one reason why the DOJ let it go. And it was that Michael Cohen had refused to do a full proffer of everything he'd ever done in his life, which would be the normal course. Give us all your potential crimes. So he presented that to Michael Cohen's attorney, um, Lanny Davis. And let me play you Lanny Davis's answer last night um, on The Last Word. Taylor. Why did Merrick Garland, is what you're asking me, not Mm -hmm. proceed? Was something called January 6th occurred, the inauguration occurred, and Merrick Garland probably made a practical judgment, not necessarily one that I would applaud, not to look back and prosecute Donald Trump, who had just left office. Probably he made the judgment, we have better things to do, but that's the second guess that we all can make about Merrick Garland. Does that track to you? No. It doesn't track. Um, I, first, I think it's a really important and terrific topic. Um, it's, you know, everyone knows what happened with Barr. That's easy. You know yeah. that he, you want to talk about politicization. He's yeah. just like, you know what, this is my guy, hands off. Um, just killed the case. Um, I think I, I want to give one benefit, though, even though it is totally unfair that the states are, are sort of carrying this, this burden, as you said, which is, if there were to be a Republican president again, these state charges in Georgia and in Manhattan, they stick because a federal pardon cannot affect them. So, That's a good you point. know, even though that doesn't really totally address your issue, which yeah. is why was there dereliction of duty? But I'm just saying there is this unintended benefit, which is that if the states are going forward and you have Georgia and New York, they will actually stay. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't really, I can't imagine that was the thinking of Merrick Garland, which <laughs> yeah. is we're not going to do this because that I want to sort of have the state um, yeah. uh, a piece of this. The reason I don't think that it totally tracks is if you look at the Department of Justice and what they were doing on the January 6th case before the actual um, January 6th committee hearings, there was very little movement in terms of looking at the White House. There was a ton of of action with respect to the people who actually attacked the Capitol. Mm-hmm. But if you look at what Merrick Garland was doing, it's not like it, it, that Lanny Davis's point is, oh, well, he was busy looking at the White House in connection with January 6th. So there's only so much they can do. Yeah. Um, they just, you know, first of all, it's a very large department. They yeah. can actually do both. Multiple things, yeah. And they really weren't pursuing Donald Trump in any form. Uh, until they were sort of, in my view, sort of embarrassed and given cover by the January 6th committee to say, like, what on God's green earth are you doing? Um, and you had many people on the committee who were very angry. The people who were former prosecutors on that committee were all saying, what is happening? Because they'd never seen a situation where Congress was out ahead yeah. of the Department of Justice. So I think the best that can be said for Merrick Garland is he was thinking that it will look like we are politicizing the Department of Justice if we do this. Right. When your point, which I think is the right one, which is by not doing it, you are actually politicizing um, the DOJ because you're taking that into account. Yeah. And I think that the, the better course is to actually is to what we were told when I was trained as a young lawyer is, you know what, do the right thing 
and that you'll know in your heart that's the right thing to do. And you know what? People on the left and the right and the yeah. middle might criticize you, but that's what comes with the job. And I remember when I was at the FBI, Director Mueller said, you are always going to be criticized no matter what we're doing. So let's just stick to our guns and yeah. do the right thing. So I think it was probably the wrong judgment. I do think that Jack Smith now is where he needs to be. And is by all accounts, that's going forward. But that time delay, you know, we're all looking at the clock right now. There is yeah. going to be an issue because those charges, if, if they are brought, it's not going to be for some time. That's right. And we're all going to be sitting there thinking, is there going to be a trial before the election? Or, or is all of this going to be for not at the federal level? Um, because these were brought too late. And I think even the appointment of Jack Smith, which to me felt like I need to put some distance, right? Like like, like the DOJ itself, to me, as an outsider looking in, should have had within it the capability of doing this investigation without adding this layer in between. When you add the layer, that means Jack Smith had to get up to speed. I think it was overseas when he was first appointed. He was. And so you then have to have him get up to speed on the case. Then you start this investigation, which then delays it. And to your point, we are looking at the possibility that this state trial goes in January, right, as the Iowa caucuses are happening, right, as New Hampshire is happening, and that in between now and then, Trump could have already been, you know, in the E. Jean Carroll case. You could have witnesses on the stand for that. You know, you could have the Georgia case coming. It's like I I feel almost as if Garland's DOJ has created a train wreck in trying to prevent politicization. Yeah, it will will remain to be seen. I'm not sure at the end of the day you could end up in a different situation just, you know, to play out a sort of a different hypothetical is you could end up with four separate criminal cases, two at the state level, two at the federal level. The Mar-a-Lago case, as because it's relatively easy in the sense it's it's a narrow set of facts that could actually jump forward quite quickly in terms of when there is an actual trial. And that could happen before an election. But I agree with you. If the issue is holding someone to account, you have somebody who, a president who, while they're in office, the Department of Justice says you can't prosecute the person. Then they leave office. If the Department of Justice says, well, let's just look forward, not backward, you have a de facto system, which is the president is never going to be held to account. You know, when the Mueller investigation, we had volume two was all about obstruction, obstruction of justice. Obstruction, 11 counts. And, and I was sitting there thinking, well, if you never are going to vindicate that, why have a special counsel in the future? Yeah. Because you're basically going to say, you know what, they can obstruct while they're a president and there's nothing you can do about it because you can't bring the case. And all you have to do is wait till you're no longer president because then you're going to look forward. Yeah. So um, it's a totally good point about the Department of Justice really just needs to bite the bullet. And yes, they'll be criticized. Sure. But you know what? That's where you're paid the big bucks. It's the Nixon Ford situation where you say, you know what, it's too hard for the country. But then it ends up being that you're incentivizing the next lawless president to say, I'm good. I just need to get elected. Let me let me ask you about Mike Pence. So Mike Pence is now not going to fight it. He's going to go ahead and he's going to testify. Significance of that. So I think that is really important to the January 6th case. One way or the other, if he has something to say that is beneficial to the former president, Jack Smith needs to know it. Um, You need to understand, is it something that is so exculpatory that you don't bring a case? Or is it something that's said that you have an answer to? Or conversely, is it something that is inculpatory? Um, And it may be uh, be some of both. Um, But it's something that obviously needs to be 
um, to be ironed out. And I also think one great thing that Jack Smith is doing, and again, this is sort of an unintended consequence of it going from Garland to Jack Smith, is he's not wishy-washy. He's not saying, come on in and let's do an interview. Like, come on set. We'll just chat. This is, you're going in the grand jury and we're going to lock you in, in a forum where there is a transcript and you're under oath and you can't back out and wiggle. There will be an actual transcript. And I think that is the way you have to do public corruption cases. There's so many people who don't want to have that. They want to not be tied down, as you know, from interviewing people. (laughs) Um, So it is really important. And it's great to see that Jack Smith is treating all these people as the way they would treat anyone Anyone. else and not looking at, gee, because of your prior job, I'm going to treat you differently. Yeah. It's, it's sort of the thing our system is built on, right? The idea that you are a citizen and then you are a member of whatever body, you're an elected official, and then you're a citizen again. If that is broken, I feel like it breaks the whole system because then if I'm, you know, a corrupt, crimey person, I'm like, you know what I want to be? President. Yeah. And let, let me give you another side to this, which is a friend of mine who worked in the White House um, in the Obama administration said, you know what, when you are a public official, you even have an extra duty. That's it. I mean, it's not that that is somehow immunizing you. That's right. You actually, unlike a normal citizen, you like, yes, if you get a subpoena, you have to go in. That's it. But if you work for the public, you're working for the public. That's it. So that is your first obligation. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew Weissman, it's so great to always talk to you. Thank you very nice much. to be here. I feel like I'm taking a little law class when I'm sitting with you. <laughs> for free. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Okay, up next on the readout, with Trump's next court appearance set for early December, we now have to consider how all this will affect the next election cycle. We will get into that when the readout continues. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The newly indicted Donald Trump was oddly quiet yesterday in New York City when he was arraigned on criminal charges, saving his bluster for his most loyal stands at Mar-a-Lago. But his speech there was nothing more than his usual stew of grievances and lies. He attacked our justice, our nation's justice system, special counsel Jack Smith, the National Archives, the state level officials investigating him. And he renewed his attacks on Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg and his family, along with the judge in the hush money case, Juan Marchand. Judge Marchand has warned Trump about social media comments that would potentially incite violence or jeopardize the safety of others. But Trump attacked him and his family hours later anyway. Not surprisingly, his Republican henchmen in Congress have no shortage of excuses to defend their dear leader. 
I tell you, this the, is about intimidation. This is about chilling everyone's speech, making everyone stay in line. Even the judge yesterday said, hey, Mr. Trump, President Trump, be careful what you say. I think that's a message to all us regular folks across the heartland. And to me, that's the most alarming thing of all. I had two calls yesterday, one from a county attorney in Kentucky and one from a county attorney in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. They, they were Republican, obviously, that both states are heavily Republican. They want to know if there are ways they can go after the Bidens now. Come on now, y'all. Of course, we all know that Trump's rant was in essence like any Trump stump speech ever since attacking the justice system in his sh- is, is his shtick. It's the thing he does. One that juices up his ardent MAGA Republican voters and gets them to give him money. Trump's trial could run headfirst and headlong into next year's Republican presidential primaries. Manhattan prosecutors are pushing for a January start. Trump's team wants it later in the spring. Defendant Trump is still the Republican frontrunner, and Lindsey Graham, well, he still is his most loyal caddy, crying and begging for cash on Fox News again last night. I'm sorry I'm so upset, but please help President Trump. If you can afford five or ten bucks, if you can't afford a dollar, fine. Just pray. Make sure you vote as early as you can in your state. Don't risk anything anymore. Vote as soon as you can. Pray for this country. Pray for this president. And if you got any money to give, give it. (laughs) Joining me now is Tara Dowtell, business and political marketing consultant, former apprentice contestant, president of the Tara Dowtell Group, and Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large at at The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor. Charlie, you don't have the benefit of being at the table with us here. So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to go to you first and ask, where should we send the hostage money? Because obviously that man a hostage. And obviously that money he's begging for is to get him out of the basement of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, so where yes. should we send the money? Pathetic. <laughs> you know, the first time that he did that, did that crying Oral Roberts routine. You yeah. know, I, I thought maybe he was just going through some things. He was having a bad night. But he's doing it again. Yeah. Uh, that he's he's doubling down on it. Um, you would you would think that there'd be a little bit of a gene left in him, of, <laughs> of a little bit of self respect or self dignity, but but no. And this, of course, is what Donald Trump is counting on uh, as as he continues to uh, you know be the fire hose of of disinformation there. But I do think that you know we are in this new uh, this new era in which uh, he is a criminal defendant and what he says might have consequences. And he has lived in a world that has been accountability free, where he can say anything. He can insult anyone. He can tell any lie. He can foment any sort of uh, insurrection without actually ever being called to account. And uh, Jim Jordan may have you know, thought it was it was <laughs> alarming, but the judge was doing in his job when he said, look, um, you need to be careful about the language you use. If you are inciting violence, if you are undermining the rule of law, I will hold you accountable as I would hold any criminal defendant accountable. And of course, we'll have to see whether, uh, in fact, that happens because we're in a new world here. And by the way, I do think it's important to point out that that reckless demagoguery of those two uh, committee chairmen, they are chairman of the committees in the House of Representatives, and uh, they are um you know, as as I've said many times on this program before, they may be clowns with flamethrowers, but they still have flamethrowers. Yeah. And uh, this is this is this is what is dangerous. And and Representative uh, Comer's uh, comments uh, are really beyond the pale to suggest that there would be some sort of uh, you know nakedly partisan retaliation. I think that that he also ought to be held accountable yeah. for that as well. Absolutely. I mean, and the thing is, Terry. I mean, you've you've worked on political campaigns. I mean, mm-hmm. you worked with politicians. Donald Trump's particular shtick is to attack everyone 
who he thinks of as an enemy. So even if there was a, a gag order, for instance, in this case, that's his whole campaign. That's all that he does. He wouldn't have anything else that he'd be able to do. And, uh, and he would clearly try to use that as well. Walk us through this for a second, because this actually could all be starting to play out in the courts mm-hmm. at the same time it's playing out on the primary campaign trail. How does that even look? Look at that's the calendar up there. This starts in January, mm-hmm. Iowa and New Hampshire for the Republicans. Well, I think that Trump's base will continue to rally around Trump. I, I don't think that they're looking to go anywhere anytime soon. He plays the victim card well. He makes it not just about him, but us. So these attacks on him are attacks on us. The, ju- the, ju- the Justice Department is attacking us. Alvin Bragg is attacking you and your family. So he plays that card very well. And people want it. They want him to play that card. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene called him Mandela and Jesus. And Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mixed in one, <laughs> which is... Uh, <laughs> Except I mean, also sleeping with an adult film. Right, exactly. Which Jesus and Mandela did. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think that, but I think that it doesn't matter what he does. But where Trump's real problem is, there's a huge gulf between a primary and a general election. And so even okay. with these charges, it's not just the charges. Women voters are being reminded about the fact that he had these tawdry affairs while his wife was pregnant. Women voters are being reminded about the laundry list of allegations against him, sexual assault sexual harassment and the stuff that he's admitted to. The Access Hollywood tape keeps getting brought up again. And so this is really damaging him for the general election. And I think that's what Republicans are afraid of, right? They, they can't walk away from him. They're tethered ho- to him. They've handed their dignity over and they're going to just every whatever little shred is left, they're going to stick with him. Right. But they know that when the general election comes around, if he is the nominee, that this will be an albatross for him, convicted or not. You know, and the thing is, Charlie, the, the hostage True. situation I'm jo- I was you know joking yeah. about with Liz- with uh, Lindsey Graham actually is real because it is true, as Tara said, the, the Republicans, even the ones who are supposedly running against him in in a primary, they're lashed to him. They have to defend him. And that yeah. means that they're going to have to go through. There are three women who are going to testify in that E. Jean Carroll case. E. Jean Carroll and two women, likely the woman who alleged he was, she was sexually assaulted in Ivanka's bedroom and the woman who claimed that she was felt up on a plane. OK, that these are the things that are, they're going to be hearing if, if they can hear them on Fox News somehow. And so that and so how much dignity are they willing to shed? They're all marginalized. Taylor Green now, what do they do if and when he's the nominee, they're stuck with him again and he takes right, them down right. and everyone down, ticket down with them? How many cycles are they willing to go through this with him? Well, we're about to find out because nothing is about to get better. I mean, you, you think about, you know, where we're at right now with all the pictures in the front page news of the president, you know, making his uh, perp walk and being the first uh, former president to be arrested. But Think about all of the things that will happen between now and the beginning of those primaries, all of the other cases, all of the other information. And during that period, Republicans are going to be forced to talk about this. They're going to be forced to uh, defend him. They're not going to be able to talk about any of their other issues. And just something to keep in mind here that we need to play the the longer chess game. You know, by the time this trial begins, whether it's in January or next spring, It may be very, very old news, because by that time, there may be other superseding indictments out of Georgia, the Department of Justice, which you were talking about in your last segment. Maybe Justice Department will finally get around to doing something. And at that point, it won't just be talking about 
Alvin Bragg. It'll be talking about the Georgia uh, perp walk. It'll be uh, talking about Mar-a-Lago. It'll be talking about January 6th. And even for Republican Party that has been willing to be hostage, no, this is the question that we'd have to watch. How much are they willing to swallow, especially as it becomes in this point about the difference between the primary and the general election cannot be overstressed. This may be helping Donald Trump short term. This is absolutely to- toxic long term. I mean, I'm here in this. I'm here in the state of Wisconsin. We saw what happened last night. Absolutely. If Republicans want to have happen nationwide, what happened in Wisconsin last night, they should keep doing exactly what they're doing because it'll turn out the same way for them. And the reality is, you know, we're in a moment where where the end of row is, in my mind, the driving factor in terms of women's votes right now. And the gun issue is the driving factor for young people's votes right now. And Republicans are banning books and making African-Americans understand they are absolutely not welcome. They have now set up a three-part failure strategy for themselves in 20. And then he's most likely to be their nominee. How has Donald Trump, you know this man, Mm -hmm. how has he managed to cow and subordinate an entire political party to the point where he could be in Sing Sing and they'd still support him. And so I've said this many times and people actually get mad at me. Donald Trump is many things, but one thing he's not is stupid. He is an excellent marketer. That is the only reason he has a penny left in his pocket because he's not a good businessman. Right. He's a good marketer. He's a Svengali. And what he has done is he has created a situation where he has built this, as we've talked about many times, this part, but bears repeating. He has built a cult around him. And that cult is what's protecting him. And I've said this before. The true accountability for both parties comes from the base. Yeah. Period. And so that's why you see with the Democratic Party, you see guys like Anthony Weiner and the Democratic Party immediately abandoned him when the allegations came out. That's right. And there's case studies about that around the country. Absolutely. But when it comes to the Republican Party, they that base will not uh, will not go against the nominee if that nominee is feeding them what they what want. they want to hear. The, the bottom line is the greatest magic trick in the world is to say, I'm a billionaire. Give me twenty four dollars, right. because if I'm a billionaire, I don't need twenty four dollars from you. I have the money. He literally has made them give him money and still believe he's a billionaire. He's not a billionaire, but he's so much richer than y'all. And y'all are giving him all your money. That's a hell of a magic trick. Tara Dowdell and Charlie Sykes, thank you very much. And still ahead, a huge win for modernity in Wisconsin as voters put a progressive in a pivotal seat on the state Supreme Court. However, danger signs remain for democracy. We'll be right back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. 
Janet Protasiewicz will become a Wisconsin Supreme Court justice, handing liberals the majority on that court for the first time in 15 years. It is a big deal and a huge relief for Wisconsin voters who are essentially held captive by a gerrymandered Republican-controlled legislature that has basically stripped Democratic Governor Tony Evers of many of his powers. Protosewitz's clear-cut victory is another reminder of just how motivating reproductive rights truly are. Wisconsin voters backed Protosewitz by a 10-point margin. But some Wisconsinites split their ticket down ballot and elected a Republican for a state Senate seat that was up for grabs, effectively handing Republicans the supermajority. Why does this matter? Because the person who won that state Senate race says he would consider impeaching Protosewitz in her current role as a Milwaukee judge. He would not say if he would try to impeach her when she takes her seat on the state Supreme Court in August. But I think you get the point. I bring this to your attention because it is a reminder that with American democracy, one key victory does not win the war. Take, for example, Tennessee. After a school gun massacre in Nashville, thousands of teenagers took to the halls of the state legislature and joined their elected representatives in demanding that Republicans do something and address gun violence in schools. Well, instead of addressing the issue, Republicans are moving to silence three Democratic state representatives by expelling them. Think about that. Tennessee Republicans want to silence nearly 200,000 Tennessee voters by kicking out the people that they voted for. At this point, just ignoring the will of the voters is becoming synonymous with Republicanism. Look at what's happening in North Carolina. This morning, State Representative Trisha Gotham announced that she would be leaving the Democratic Party to join the Republicans, ignoring the will of her constituents. Gotham was elected in a majority Democratic district after campaigning on reproductive rights and LGBTQ issues. Instead, her party switch hands Republicans a veto-proof majority in that state at a time when they want to ban abortion. When reporters ask what Republicans would do next in the next election, given that she represents a reliably Democratic district, guess what they said? They said they intend to redistrict the House and the Senate and the congressional seats. And incumbency is always taken into account. Ah, yes, democracy at work. When you can't win on the issues, just change the rules to make sure that you win. Look, I don't want to dismiss Protosewitz's huge victory in Wisconsin last night. But voters have to remember that change doesn't happen from the top down. It happens from the bottom up, starting at the local level. And joining me now is John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation and associate editor for The Capital Times in Madison, Wisconsin. It is so good to see you. It's been too long, John. And, you know, I was super excited uh, about Protosewitz's win because I'm thinking, good, women in Wisconsin will not be state property now because this 1849 law, in theory, could come before that court. And then I heard about this state Senate seat. Because the reality is, is that people voted on the one hand to protect their rights and modernity and on the other hand to give Republicans the power to erase what they had already done. How does this make sense? Well, in some ways, it doesn't make sense, although you have to understand that this seat where the Republican won the state Senate seat is a traditionally Republican seat. In fact, it was a Republican seat until its sitting senator stepped down. So effectively, after the 2022 election, Republicans had a supermajority. This isn't something new. They had it. They lost it briefly. They have now got it back. And it comes into a, a kind of a different perspective here because we've now had the change in the court. 
And where we have to be very conscious is that among all the issues that this court is likely to take up, and that's abortion rights, labor rights, all the business issues that courts usually deal with, the one that may stand out most is addressing gerrymandering. And if this court takes a gerrymandering case and says, you know, look, these maps are terrible, they're rigged, as Janet Protosawit said, as a candidate, um, then you're going to see a lot of Republican legislators who are very scared because they only control that legislature because of gerrymandering. Their power extends from rigged maps. If the court is going to unrig those maps, yeah, you'll see, you will see a lot of pushback. You'll see a lot of efforts to try and undo it. But I'll give you a, a couple pieces of counsel here, Joy. First and foremost, um, in talking to Republican state senators, there's not a lot of excitement about the idea of an impeachment trial. Because if they tried this on a newly elected state Supreme Court justice, who won running clearly on her stance on the issues, she talked about her values, and who won a very large majority, more than 200,000 vote majority, if they tried that, I think they, they might as well uh, you know, give up on the 2024 presidential election in Wisconsin and on the Senate race in Wisconsin where Tammy Baldwin's up. So they are, they're, they're very cutthroat, but they're also very conscious of politics. Right. And so I don't necessarily think that impeachment's coming down the line. But what I will tell you is, if by some chance they did do this, if they impeached Janet Protosavis and removed her from the court after this election, the person who would replace her is progressive Democratic Governor Tony Evers, mm. who would immediately put another liberal on the court. Very interesting. So, I mean, and, and I think this is the thing is that I love that you explain that because I feel like people don't think through sort of the uses of power. Republicans do, though, because Wisconsin oh, yeah. has been not just an extremely gerrymandered state, but a minority rule state for quite a long time. Extreme gerrymandering, um, you know, busting unions, essentially forcing all of this very 50-50 state to live under extreme Republican rule. Do you see that beginning to crack because of this race. And be, to be blunt, because women were upset over the end of Roe and were like, no, we're not going to vote in the guy who wants to, you know, put in the 1849 abortion ban. You nailed it, Joy. I mean, that's there. there is a shift taking place. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, that shift started in 2018. Democrats and progressives have been on a winning streak in Wisconsin since 2018, winning the governorship, attorney general's job, uh, this is the third state Supreme Court race that they've won uh, since 2018. So they've been building majorities. They've been building strength. Um, and, and I think this one became a, a national focus because it actually did shift the court from a 4-3 conservative majority to a 4-3 liberal majority. I, I do think that, that there is a shift going on in Wisconsin, and it has a couple of factors in play. First and foremost, you talk about the, the reproductive rights issues. You're right about women. In the suburbs of Milwaukee, an area that was traditionally a, just a, a tremendously uh, powerful vote-generating area for the Republicans, they are starting to lose numbers. In Walworth County, where my mother lives, um, and that's a conservative county, historically a very Republican county, Puerto Saywood's got 45% of the vote. That's striking. That's amazing. Uh, that's up at the levels that Obama got at his very best in 2008. So that's a big deal there. But then the other thing I would throw in the mix here is, while we're talking about women, we should also talk about young people as a group. 
these reproductive rights issues and also these gerrymandering issues have real resonance with young voters. And there were lines of young voters in Madison, in Eau Claire, in Green Bay, around the state. And so I do think there's a shift going on. And if you can kind of generate the, the level of support that Protosawit's got in a nonpartisan, off-year spring election on one of the rainiest, stormiest nights Wisconsin has had in a long time, yep. uh, then could you do that in November of 2024? I think you could. Yeah. And I, I would argue that for Democrats nationally, guns and reproductive rights, and I would throw in LGBTQ rights and protecting history, those are winning issues. Republicans think they're winning issues for them. They are 100 percent wrong. Uh, John Nichols, thank you very much. Up next, another win for progressives last night, this time in Chicago. But mayor-elect Brandon Johnson now faces off against the Chicago Police Department that vehemently opposes election. Back in a second. It was right here in the city of Chicago that Martin Luther King Jr. organized for justice, dreaming that one day that the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement will come together. Well, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement has finally collided. We are experiencing the very dream of the greatest man who ever walked the earth. Okay, Pastor, that was Chicago's new mayor-elect Brandon Johnson after scoring last night's other major progressive victory. His win is also a major referendum on how the city tackles the issue of crime and gun violence. Johnson ran on investing in communities and mental health services. He defeated Paul Vallis, who ran a tough-on-crime campaign focused on expanding Chicago's police force. But now the city is bracing for a potential showdown. Chicago's police union president warned last week that up to a thousand officers would leave the force if Johnson won, telling The New York Times in Trumpian fashion that, quote, if this guy gets in, we're going to see an exodus like we've never seen before, predicting blood in the streets. Joining me now is Tina Svandelis, chief political reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, Ms. Svandelis, thank you for being here. Is that is that what we're looking at here? Is What is the likelihood uh, that this police union president uh, will follow through on those threats? Well, he is used to making fiery statements like this. And Paul Vallis actually last week walked this back and said, you know, I do not support this. Police officers should not quit if he loses. And that's indeed what happened. Um, so it's it's not what we're seeing, but we are seeing that Vallis ran on a platform that he would embolden and strengthen police officers, that he was against some of these um, foot pursuit policies, um, that he wanted to fill all these vacancies. And so that's why the police union supported him. And you know what? One of the d difficulties for every mayor of a big city is that you have to deal with the police union. And that's difficult in New York, in Atlanta. It's difficult in Chicago. This is the the, the fraternal order of police president that we were just talking about. His name is John Cat John Catanarza, John Catanarza or John Catanzara. Sorry. He has expressed sympathies for the rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. He's called Muslims savages who all deserve a bullet. He re retired from the police force in 2021 rather than face potential disciplinary actions. He punctuated his retirement papers with a handwritten note. Finally, let's go, Brandon. He also said in an interview, if I get paid a dollar every time I was called a racist, I'd be independently wealthy. So uh, that is what the city of Chicago and its African-American population are dealing with. How ugly is this relationship going to be? 
This is a historically hostile relationship. Mayor Lori Lightfoot had a very hard time with the police union and the police department in general. And I, I see that, think that that will continue until Brandon Johnson can form some sort of trust level. I don't know what that will be like, but we will have a new police superintendent in July. There's a new civilian oversight board that is whittling down three candidates. And that's different than what we've seen before. So that might be an internal candidate that might be a great candidate for the police department to have someone to trust who knows what's going on. If you think about Mary uh, Lori Lightfoot, she had an outsider come in and we've seen several mayors hire outsiders. That doesn't always go well. Yeah. And especially the climate that we are in in uh, the Chicago police department now, it's low morale. There's so many vacancies. Um, there's, they don't agree with who the mayor was. And now too, they're not in favor of Johnson. They're going to have to find a way to work with them. No, I mean, you, you, it, it isn't necessary that police should be allowed to be violent or quit. Like that doesn't seem, that seems like a rather weird false choice. Uh, what about some of the policies that this new mayor elect is talking about? Because some of it sounds actually pretty exciting, I think, for a lot of people, uh, meaning that, you know, a call that where somebody's having a mental health crisis, a mental health person responds rather than police. I mean, that sounds like uh, something that's pretty sound. Absolutely. See it as very common sense ways to deal with uh, violent crime in Chicago. And we've had an uptick in almost all uh, levels of crime. I, I know murders and shootings are down, but everything else is up. And so there needs to be a different solution than just policing. And that's what people saw. And that's what uh, why a lot of people voted for Brandon Johnson. Let me play uh, Mr. Johnson on Morning Joe today. We tend to limit our conversations around toughness and more police officers and what has been proven over and over again, that is not a recipe for absolute success. And so our mission in my platform has been very clear. We get at the immediate um, dynamic of public safety, but we also set up long-term solutions, and that's everything from economic development, uh, affordable housing, but we also have to provide health care, and that includes mental health care. We know that Lori Lightfoot was a fairly polarizing figure. Um, does this new incoming mayor have allies uh, in the community, the business community, those who supported Vallis? He's working on that. And there was a couple of letters sent out today from business organizations, some of the largest ones willing, saying that they will work with him, but yeah. they have very different views. He wants to fund $800 million worth of uh, taxes for these yeah. mental and social services. Yeah. And so that's going to be difficult to mend with the business community. We shall see. Tina Svondelis, thank you very much. Up next, students across the country walk out of class in a coordinated protest against the scourge of gun violence in America. We'll be right back. I know I'm not the only one who's tired of this happening, and I also know I'm not the only one who's tired of saying that. This generation, my generation, our generation has grown up in a pandemic of gun violence, and it is killing us. Guns are the number one killer of children and teens in America right now. We cannot accept this. We cannot normalize this. We cannot sit back while 120 people die every single day and hundreds more are wounded by guns. That was a student in Tampa, Florida today calling for gun reform one week after the horrific Nashville Elementary School shooting. Today, many students across the country walked out of class to demand an end to gun violence. In response to last week's shooting, Tennessee Democrats announced five pieces of legislation to fight gun violence. But across the aisle, Tennessee Republicans are doubling down on their out-of-touch behavior, today advancing a bill that would arm teachers with guns 
despite a crowd of mothers begging them not to do it. Here is that scene from today. There are children alive today that would be dead because of your attitudes. This comes as these same completely disconnected from reality Republicans plan to vote tomorrow to expel three Democratic lawmakers for supporting Tennessee students in a gun control protest at the state capitol. We will talk to two of those state representatives, Gloria Johnson and Justin Jones, tomorrow. You don't want to miss it. And that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.